It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Francine Lacroix. And I'm David Merritt. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the city of London. This week, we crossed the channel to consider the fate of Paris as a financial centre, something we've talked about in this podcast frequently, the rise of the Parisian stock market and the flow of jobs from banking into Paris. Well, we wanted to talk about European banking, but given the violent protest at Macron's pension reforms and the current situation on the ground, we hear from our very busy Bureau Chief Alan Katz on how much of this pro-business agenda can the president really see through? Yeah, some of the scenes from the streets with burning trash, uh, violent protests, tear gas. Now in France, riot police have used tear gas and water cannon to clear protesters from the streets of Paris. As thousands protested against President Emmanuel Macron's decision to impose pension reform by decree. Well, the government and the unions are still at loggerheads. Those talks between uh, the prime minister and the unions didn't even last for an hour before the unions walked out saying there was no point. Of course, you know, protest is nothing new in France, but this time what we were hearing, it things feel a little bit different. And also what comes after Macron? Will the French capital continue to be as friendly to finance? So let's get straight to our bureau chief in Paris, Alan Katz. So Alan, how much does President Macron's pro-business agenda, how much can he see that through? Well, everything that he's done so far stays. So every effort that Macron's made since 2017 to turn France into a pro-business location and a place that foreign investors in particular will want to come to, all of that stays in place, and certainly through the end of his term in 2027. The issue with the current protests and strikes, I was just going to say, is that, is that the question becomes, can he do anything more? There was some more things on his list of uh, more labor reform he wanted to do, uh, more efforts to try to make it even more business friendly. And, and that's, it's not clear that he's going to be able to get those things done. I mean, you know, the images splashed around the world in the last couple of weeks of, as I said, burning trash on the streets, crowds running at police officers. Uh, King Charles cancelled his trip. These are very negative headlines, obviously, for investors, for institutions thinking about where they're going to expand their offices. What's it like on the ground now in Paris? Has the moment or has the sort of violence dissipated enough and the trash been cleaned up so it's back to normal or are those sorts of things still a concern? Well, well, Dave and Francine, you'll both be happy to know that the trash has been cleaned up. So the streets are clear in Paris. It no longer looks like New York on trash day. But for the moment, things are okay. Things are not burning anymore. Things have have basically returned to normal. But that's in part because most people are waiting for April 14th. And that's the day that the French Constitutional Council will issue its verdict on whether or not the law that Macron forced through Parliament without a vote, the cause of of, um, sort of a renewed level of violence uh, in these strikes, 
But that's when this Constitutional Council will rule on whether or not that's actually constitutional. And they can do two things. One, they can either say that the entire law is unconstitutional, um, perhaps because the government did not allow full and free debate in Parliament. That's extremely unlikely. It's only happened twice in the history of this Constitutional Council since 1958. Or much more likely, they could rule that certain parts of the law are unconstitutional because they don't fit in the type of bill that the government used, which was a supplementary budget bill for the Social Security system. If they rule that the latter, that parts of this are unconstitutional, the question then becomes, do both sides use this as a way to sort of step back and say, actually, there's parts that we need to renegotiate. We can discuss, you know, senior employment or other things that have been on both the government's and the union's agenda. And we'll pause this implementation of this retirement reform for a few months until we complete that. That's one possibility that, and a way to bring sort of peace back to the streets of Paris. It's unclear whether or not that will happen yet. Alan, why is there so much anger? In the past, we've asked, is France reformable? So that's, it's a good question. Is, is France governable or is France reformable? The protest started when this was still a bill to be passed. And the purpose of the protest was to try to influence politicians over how they're going to vote for the bill. The violence really came about after Macron forced through the bill without a vote, which is it's a legal process in France. It's called 49-3 after the number, the article in the Constitution that gives the, uh, the government this power. But given the amount of time the government had spent saying that they intended to go to a vote in Parliament to then at the last minute say, actually, forget it. We know we're going to lose this vote. We know that this is unpopular. We know that we can't even get a majority of parliamentarians on our side. So we're just going to push it through with this other legal system. That really caused a big upswell in violence and I'd say a pretty high level of not necessarily anger, anger from some people, but dismay from many others over the way that this is being done. I think that's been a real, it's turned out to be a real problem for Macron and for his government, that the perception is that they are trying to push this, they set out a path for how they're going to do this, and then they deviate at the last moment, and that makes this feel or seem unfair to many people. And that's one of the real problems that they're having now. Alan, have, have you ever seen this level of chaos on French streets? It was pretty embarrassing that they had to cancel King Charles's visit to France. It was extremely embarrassing. Um, I have, but not since 1995, uh, which was a long time ago. Uh, but if you recall then, there was three weeks of sort of incessant strikes uh, over retirement reform again at that time. Um, and again, transport in Paris was totally shut down. And back then, no one had, you know, very few people had internet access, no one had mobile phones. And so, you know, everyone had to trudge to and from work. And it was snowing for much of the time. So I remember that actually as being the worst, the worst strike moment uh, in the 25 odd plus years that I've been in France. Um, but the King Charles thing was quite uh, a dramatic moment, right? Having to cancel a visit of a foreign head of state, one of your, despite the, the ups and downs that France and the UK have, one of your clo very closest allies. It's, um, you know, it is, it is quite, uh, it's quite embarrassing. They did it because there were lots of messages on social media about trying to create or get together big protests uh, in Versailles, which is where King Charles was supposed to address parliament and where he was supposed to have dinner with, with Emmanuel Macron. Um, certainly the, the police could have it would not have degenerated into chaos, but the, the level of police presence, I think, would have, been, have to have been so great that it really would have been a bad look for Macron, both in terms of, of how it looked to King Charles, but also how it looks to the French people, right? If you have tens of thousands of police and then you're dining with a foreign king in Versailles, of course, 
the place where French kings used to live before the French Revolution. It, it, I think in general that was really the overriding reason that they canceled is that politically it was going to be um, very, very difficult for Macron. Alan, thank you so much. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now also with us are Paris banking reporter Alex Rajbandari and with us in London, editor Tom Metcalf. Welcome both to In the City. Hello. Thank you. Tom Metcalf. Hello. Talk to us about who's winning this France versus British story. If you sort of dig behind the belief, the rubbish in, in the Parisian streets, it is still such a you know an increasingly important centre for finance, and you know something that would really be unthinkable you know a, a decade ago before sort of Brexit hoved into view. You know the bankers, the executives who are making these decisions about where are they putting people are not making these decisions. You know in the moment, you know, reacting to sort of what I presume they're viewing as temporary protests in Paris, but much more on the structural things of, guess what? Because of Brexit, you cannot no longer operate exclusively out of London. So what we're seeing is, you know, particularly Paris on the rise as, you know, difficult to call it like, um, it's not a direct competitor now, but it's the one benefiting, whereas London's sort of got a sort of flat puncher, so slowly losing some of that dominance. Uh, And we are seeing Paris really emerge as a as a genuine trading hub. Yeah, we've got some of the stats here, which are really remarkable, rather than just anecdotal. You know, who is hiring and where are the jobs coming to in Paris? Got JP Morgan have now got 550 market staff there. That's a 22 fold increase on 2019. We've just in the last few weeks heard about hedge funds like Millennium Management. They've doubled their employees in Paris. So these are real jobs, high paid jobs moving to Paris, and it's having a spillover effect on the city. As a whole, things like, of course, as you would expect, housing prices surging, uh, demand for schools, um, all of these things. I mean, Tom, do you think these jobs, are they moving from London or are these just new jobs being created? So is it a, is it a bleed of, of jobs and capital from, from Britain or is this just companies having to beef up in Paris so they've got that footprint in the European Union? So certainly initially it was, you know, directly moving from London. People were you know, being asked to relocate. And, you know, that was in the overall in sort of the low thousands, those numbers. What's happening now is 
it's less about people in London being moved, but when, say, you know, executives at a big Wall Street firm look at where they're maybe looking to expand headcount, they will maybe go, Paris is a natural option for any EU stuff. And, and that may be local hires. But the thing I'd always, I always keep in mind is this opportunity cost to London, because pre-Brexit, all these jobs would be going into into London. Like, there's absolutely no doubt about that. But Brexit obviously opened it, it up as a different opportunity. And, you know, the thing I like, you know, this is happening across Europe, but Paris really stands out for me because it is those traders you just mentioned. Those are the really the jobs anyone in their right mind want in their city because they're super high paid. They get taxed a bundle on their, their you know, inordinate bonuses. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, that really has an impact in terms of sort of multiplier effect through the economy. But of course, as, as you also point out, it has plenty of negative impacts in terms of the rental market, you know, as a space at schools, pressure on that kind of thing. And Alex, if you look at, you know, Emmanuel Macron, the president, also a former banker, he really rolled out the red carpet for a lot of these finance jobs to come back to Paris. Has that changed? Um, no, not really. I mean, he's really keen to bring more people in France. Um, he visited the new offices of JP Morgan when these were inaugurated last year uh, with the presence of Jamie Dimon. Uh, I can tell you that there are banks in France that changed their offices and he didn't show up and no one in the government showed up for that. So he definitely has an agenda to bring more business uh, and more of those business and those jobs in the French capital. Alexandra, what does it feel like in terms of the city, how the city is changing? So that we've, we've heard about the schools getting oversubscribed, housing costs going up. Has the feeling of Paris shifted? Has it? Does it feel like a different city with all these bankers arriving in? with all these high-paid jobs? Well, there are certain neighborhoods uh, around big banks' offices that definitely can feel the change, you know, with all those big clients with, uh, you know, a lot of purchasing power that come in. Um, the main change really is for the real estate market. I mean, I spoke with a banker who just moved to Paris and told me his biggest headache was to find a flat, really, because uh, the rental market is very tense. Everybody wants the same thing, a flat with an outside space and a beautiful view of a Paris. And so there's not enough space and not enough of these flats for everyone. So this is this is the main hurdle when people come. They don't to tend Paris. to be then the biggest schools. apartments in Paris either, do they? Just historically. Yeah, also, yeah. I mean they want they want over two hundred square meters, which is not very common in Paris as well. So uh, it makes uh, the equation quite complicated. Is that going to breed a bit of uh, resentment? I mean, are people thinking, gosh, you know, why are we being squeezed out of these nice bits of central Paris by all these bankers? I would say um, these were already, uh, these flats were already the ones that people with those kind of jobs were having. It's just that it's it makes it even more complicated for people to come in. I mean, the, there is a difference. I mean, okay, so the real estate prices in Paris have gone up quite significantly in recent years. And um, it was because of the interest rates being really low, but also Brexit bringing in a lot of jobs. And yes, indeed, people are getting squeezed out of Paris. Uh, it's I wouldn't say it's, you know, the average trader in Paris that thinks that he has to move away from Paris now because the, the people coming from London are taking his place. Tom, how's it feel on the other side of the channel then? I mean, I mean, London obviously has not had this big upswing in jobs, but what are the plans for the banks in the city? Are they still hiring? Yeah, look, everyone's talking a good game here. And, and you know, to put it into context, London is still the, the big beast of, of European finance. You know, this is 
Paris and, and other EU financial centres are coming from a, a fairly uh, sort of small base. So, you know, those figures of, I think JP Morgan have, what, about 550 traders mm-hmm. uh, in Paris or so. You know, currently, I think in total, JP Morgan has about 19,000 people in the UK. Right. Now, albeit they're not all traders, right? So uh, there's a long way to go to close that gap, but the momentum is all with Paris. And I think the atmosphere in London is, you know, people are sort of adjusting to this post-Brexit life still. And, you know, I think there's some people who are saying, great, this is a fantastic opportunity for us to, if we play it right, to become this completely new international financial centre, kind of leave the EU in our dust. And then you have the sort of the the Ramonas or or whatnot just sort of saying, well, this is just structural problems we've created for ourselves. And, you know, I do think there's a a small subset, not no one's saying Brexit can be reversed, um, but they're hoping that maybe closer ties with Europe could come. So, you know, there's still a lot of debate here. And, you know, London is still in a strong position, but it's definitely not going in the direction I think, you know, its biggest boosters would want. Alexandra, what's the infrastructure like? So you mentioned finding flats, but what about the schools? A lot of the top earners and a lot of the big banks will have kids that don't speak French. Yes, uh, that's true. And they don't want to put their kids in the French system. And uh, they're struggling to find places in in schools, in international schools in Paris, because there are not so many of them. New new schools are opening once and again, uh, but it remains, I mean, the infrastructure is not there yet. Uh, I was speaking with the, the chairman of uh, one of the biggest international schools in Paris, who was telling me that he was looking in the long term for a new building to get a new a new school going, but he, you know, it's, it's, still, it's still there. I would say it's complicated and it's a complicated equation for them, but banks, when they move traders, they do, they are in touch with schools. So they do try to put their kids, their employees' kids in those schools when they can. And what's interesting, you know, is that Paris for a long time was a French-speaking city and only a French-speaking city. And now uh, we see when you walk on trading floors of big American banks that moved operations here, People don't speak French. I was speaking to someone who told me 20 languages are spoken on his trading floor. And not everybody cares so much about not being a fluent French speaker when they move in. Right. I was going to ask that, Alexandre. That's that's no longer a a prerequisite for a job in Paris, right? You don't need to speak French. It is not. It is not. And they're quite happy to have all this diversity uh, in their local operations here. Uh, Some banks provide French lessons for their traders uh, to kind of help them blend in and uh, settle for the long term, which is something that comes very regularly when you speak with heads of US banks here. Um, they they do in, in, they want to have their traders move in for the long term. It's not just a two-year stint uh, that they're offering. And this is a big change for, for the city in itself because, um, I mean, I grew up in a city where like, everybody spoke French and when you spoke English, no yeah. one could actually help you um, find a direction in Paris, right? Yeah, and so it's become. Oh, I suppose it's a French word, isn't it? Cosmopolitan, I suppose. It's <laughs> French uh, yeah. Paris, as opposed to you know the. the uh, I, I remember as well. You know, as a, a, a years ago, going to Paris, and you would struggle to speak uh, English with a taxi driver. That's all changed enormously. I, I feel the city feels more international, right? Definitely, um, it's changed a lot in recent years, and now people are kind of rolling their tongues around English, even if they're not really confident with it, but they do. Uh, try and that's a big change for for the city. Tom Metcalf demanded, I say, "C'est la vie, London." 
Otherwise, Thank he, you, he doesn't Fran. come on the podcast again. Exactly. Me neither. Look, finance is probably one of the most competitive industry, right? It really is international, really, you know, money is mobile. So, you know, London's got a, you know, a, a fight on its hands and it will, you know, it's, it's definitely got plans to make sure it kind of retains its dominance. I don't think that's going to slip away anytime soon. But, you know, as a lot of sort of executives here tell me, it's like, we just made our lives, you know, we put our lives onto hard mode, basically. But we've got a government now, haven't we, Tom, in Britain, who are regaining a bit of credibility on uh, the global investor stage. We we had a lot of plaudits for how they uh, swiftly dealt with the SVB situation, orchestrating that deal with HSBC. Uh, we've got former banker, obviously, in Downing Street. And in France, we have a president preoccupied with trying to quell protests, uh, popularity really plunging. Uh, is the ball now slightly more in the UK's court in terms of setting up the sort of regulation, uh, the sort of climate to let the city thrive now, now that Brexit really is slightly a bit more in the rearview mirror, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's been the biggest change recently is on the political side, I think there is a sense in the city that, you know, the UK government is much more open, is much more, has their back of the square mile, um, which really did not feel like it was the case, certainly during the Brexit negotiations and even afterwards. Um, so that's been a change. Um, and, and look, the UK has so many sort of fundamental strengths, whether it's the legal system, English as the primary language, and this massive, you know, hub that's already in place with all the talent, all the sort of um, tech wizardry that you could possibly want. So, you know, I'm a big optimist for the city of London. It's just at a moment where, you know, perhaps, you know, Paris has got a light, slight advantage in terms of pulling people over. So, Tom, we're not moving to Paris. <laughs> not anytime soon. Dave, you're could, not moving to Paris. Well, we could do maybe we could do the next episode from Paris. I wouldn't mind doing. It. Maybe we the, could do it in live. Deal. <laughs> Only if they clean up the streets with no rubbish, please. Alexander, if you could it's take care of it. It's in the process. It's in the process of being cleaned. Don't worry, Francine. Alexander, who has first mover advantage? So I think Bank of America were one of the first ones to have traders there. JP Morgan also has quite a big presence. D does it make a difference if you started moving your staff there two, three years ago? And again, in the global scheme of things, these are, these are still pretty small numbers from these big Wall Street titans. Indeed, but it's a very competitive market. So um, banks moved here mostly because of talent. Um, because a lot of traders in London already or in New York were coming from French engineering schools and they are French speaking, they are French nationals. So there was a lot of talent to dip in when you moved to Paris. So definitely for Bank of America who moved here and decided to set its um, operations, uh, European operations here, um, it, they, there is a first mover advantage. Also, you know, French banks pay less, so they poach a lot from uh, French banking teams and French spending floors. But overall, I mean, all the banks I've been speaking to have told me that the operations they moved here were uh, staffed with a mix of relocations and local hires. So it's, there's no clear picture of who gains what in this process. I would say that there's a first mover advantage when you want to poach in French banks and get the best talent there. And then, you know, you bring in the other people in London that want to be in Paris and be in a trading floor that has a view on the Eiffel Tower, on the Arc de Triomphe, because this is exactly what it looks like when you walk on those floors. Great. Thank you both for joining okay, us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. If you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate 
review and subscribe. It helps people find our show, so please take a second and leave a rating. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francine Lacqua. It was produced by Summer Sadi, Mariful Hussain and Moses Andam. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Tom Metcalf, Alexandra Rajbandari and Alan Katz. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.